Welcome to The Spirit Explodes with Roger Kirby. This is the 22nd and last study in the book of the Acts of the Apostles. So we're looking at Acts chapter 27, verse 1, right through to the end of the book. It's all about the journey to Rome, which is happening at long last. It really is rather puzzling that Luke spent so much space on his precious scroll describing this sea journey, from which we, like everybody else, are not going to be able to get much spiritual nourishment. There are at least three possible reasons. First, this sort of exciting sea voyage, complete with shipwreck, was commonplace in Greek literature, and Luke wanted his work to fit the normal pattern to make it as acceptable a read as possible. Secondly, this is a we passage, indicating that Luke himself was on this voyage, and so was complying with the expectation of those days that historical writers should have had some involvement in the events they described. And three, Luke wanted to set Paul's journey to Rome and his death there in parallel to Jesus' journey to Jerusalem and his death, thus showing how the life of a Christian should imitate that of Jesus. First we read from chapter 27, verses 1 to 12. When it was decided that we would sail for Italy, Paul and some other prisoners were handed over to a centurion named Julius, who belonged to the Imperial Regiment. We boarded a ship from Andromitium, about to sail for ports along the coast of the province of Asia, and we put out to sea. Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica, was with us. The next day we landed at Sidon, and Julius, in kindness to Paul, allowed him to go to his friends so they might provide for his needs. From there we put out to sea again and passed to the Lee of Cyprus, because the winds were against us. When we had sailed across the open sea, off the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we landed at Myra in Lycia. There the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing for Italy and put us on board. We made slow headway for many days and had difficulty arriving off Canidus. When the wind did not allow us to hold our course, we sailed to the Lee of Crete, opposite Salmoni. We moved along the coast with difficulty and came to a place called Fair Havens, near the town of Lasia. Much time had been lost, and sailing had already become dangerous, because by now it was after the fast. So Paul warned them, Men, I can see our voyage is going to be a disastrous and bring great loss to ship and cargo, and to our own lives also. But the centurion, instead of listening to what Paul said, followed the advice of the pilot and of the owner of the ship. Since the harbour was unsuitable to winter in, the majority decided that we should sail on, hoping to reach Phoenicia, Phoenix, and winter there. This was a harbour in Crete, facing both southwest and northwest. Sea voyages around the eastern end of the Mediterranean in those days were difficult 
and dangerous. Most ships hugged the coast, putting into a safe harbour every night, if they could. The date of the fast, mentioned in this passage, was variable, but it probably fell in October, by which time sailing had become very dangerous because of the autumn storms. Paul was an experienced sea traveller, and clearly had as good an idea of what was safe as the sailors, and a better one than the centurion. There is a good example of Luke's accuracy here. Paul suggested there might be loss of life, and there wasn't. This is presumably a bit of everyday advice rather than prophetic insight. Getting Egyptian grain to Rome was such a high priority that the Caesars promised to reimburse the owners of any ships lost on the passage, hence the willingness of the owner to take the considerable risk of proceeding. Read verses 13 to 26. When a gentle south wind began to blow, they thought they had obtained what they wanted, so they weighed anchor and sailed along the shore of Crete. Before very long, a wind of hurricane force, called the Northeaster, swept down from the island. The ship was caught by the storm and could not head into the wind, so we gave way to it and were driven along. As we passed to the lee of a small island called Caudia, we were hardly able to make the lifeboat secure. When the men had hoisted it aboard, they passed ropes under the ship itself to hold it together, fearing that they would run aground on the sandbars of Sirtis. They lowered the sea anchor and let the ship be driven along. We took such a violent battering from the storm that the next day they began to throw the cargo overboard. On the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and the storm continued raging, we finally gave up all hope of being saved. After the men had gone a long time without food, Paul stood up before them and said, Men, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. Then you would have spared yourselves this damage and loss. But now I urge you to keep up your courage, because not one of you will be lost, only the ship will be destroyed. Last night an angel of the God whose I am and whom I serve stood beside me and said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar, and God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage, men. For I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Nevertheless, we must run aground on some island. Paul even says, I told you so, which cannot have endeared him to the sailors. But his general sense of optimism, based on his certainty through visions that he would reach Rome, would have helped everybody aboard the stricken vessel. The Sirtis mentioned is off the coast of Africa, so a long way from the course they intended to sail, which is an indication of how panic-struck they were. Now we read verses 27 to 44 of this chapter 27. On the fourteenth night we were still being driven across the Adriatic Sea, when about midnight the sailors sensed they were approaching land. They took soundings and found that the water was a hundred and twenty feet deep. 
A short time later, they took soundings again and found it was 90 feet deep. Fearing that we should be dashed against the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for daylight. In an attempt to escape from the ship, the sailors let the lifeboat down into the sea, pretending they were going to lower some anchors from the bow. Then Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, Unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. So the soldiers cut the ropes that held the lifeboat and it let it fall away. Just before dawn, Paul urged them all to eat. For the last fourteen days, he said, you have been in constant suspense and have gone without food. You haven't eaten anything. Now I urge you to take some food. You need it to survive. Not one of you will lose a single hair from his head. After he said this, he took some bread and gave thanks to God in front of them all. Then he broke it and began to eat. They were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. Altogether, there were 276 of us on board. When they had eaten as much as they wanted, they lightened the ship by throwing the grain into the sea. When daylight came, they did not recognize the land, but they saw a bay with a sandy beach where they had decided to run the ship aground, if they could. Cutting loose the anchors, they left them in the sea and at the same time untied the ropes that held the rudders. Then they hoisted the foresail to the wind and made for the beach, but the ship struck a sandbar and ran aground. The bow stuck fast and would not move, and the stern was broken to pieces by the pounding of the surf. The soldiers planned to kill the prisoners to prevent any of them from swimming away and escaping, but the centurion wanted to spare Paul's life and kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and to get to land. The rest were to get there on planks or on pieces of the ship. In this way, everyone reached the land safely. By this time, it seems that Paul was effectively in charge of events. It is easy to imagine that, prisoner though he was, everyone was looking to him for wise guidance. Question 1. What was Paul's attitude to his fellow travellers and the ship's crew? He showed great sympathy to them as fellow human beings. He did not start trying to save souls in this dire emergency. Now we're going to read chapter 28 verses 1 to 10. Once safely on shore, we found out that the island was called Malta. The islanders showed us unusual kindness. They built a fire and welcomed us all because it was raining and cold. Paul gathered a pile of brushwood, and, as he put it on the fire, a viper, driven out by the heat, fastened itself on his hand. When the islanders saw the snake hanging from his hand, they said to each other, this man must be a murderer, for though he escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. But Paul shook the snake off into the fire and suffered no ill effects. The people expected him to swell up or suddenly fall dead. But after waiting a long time and seeing nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their minds and said he was a god. There was an estate nearby, 
that belonged to Publius, the chief official of the island. He welcomed us to his home and for three days entertained us hospitably. His father was sick in bed, suffering from fever and dysentery. Paul went in to see him and after prayer placed his hands on him and healed him. When this had happened, the rest of the sick on the island came and were cured. They honoured us in many ways, and when we were ready to sail, they furnished us with the supplies we needed. It would seem that Julius, the centurion, had by now given all control over to Paul. There was a widespread belief in paganism in those days, and perhaps in Judaism too, think of the story of Jonah, that those who were guilty of crime would not survive a sea voyage. It is interesting, therefore, that Luke says it was the islanders who thought Paul must be a murderer, getting his just deserts from the snake. Those who had been in the ship with him clearly had a very different view of him. By the time they left the island, when the better weather came in springtime, the islanders respected him as well. The whole episode is a great example of how a Christian should carry him or herself in times of difficulty and adversity. Question 2. What therefore is Luke suggesting by the way he described this voyage? In the eyes of his fellow travellers, perhaps even including some of the less perceptive Christians, Paul was innocent of any crime. To them, trial before the emperor was unnecessary, as he had already been judged by the sea and found innocent. Throughout the story, there is a wonderful blending of natural wisdom on Paul's part, and the open statement of occasional visions from the Lord that directed them all to safety against all the odds. Question 3. What picture of the relationships between Christians and non-Christians to the events on Malta place before us. There is a remarkable sense of friendship and mutually beneficial relationships presented here. The islanders show unusual kindness to the shipwrecked folk. The local big man is friendly towards them. Paul is ready with help to sick people and the islanders honour the disciples when they come to leave. It is a reminder that although we may think theologically of non-believers as sinners, they are also our fellow human beings, and we should relate to them as such. And now we read chapter 28, verses 11 to 16. After three months, we put out to sea in a ship that had wintered in the island. It was an Alexandrian ship, with the figurehead of the twin gods Castor and Pollux. We put in at Syracuse and stayed there three days. From there we set sail and arrived at Regium. The next day the south wind came up, and on the following day we reached Puteoli. There we found some brothers who invited us to spend a week with them, and so we came to Rome. The brothers there had heard that we were coming, and they travelled as far as the Forum of Appius and the three taverns to meet us. At the sight of these men, Paul thanked God and was encouraged. When we got to Rome, Paul was allowed to live by himself with a soldier to the guard him. The last part of Luke's we passage 
is first an easy trip by ship from Malta round Sicily and up the west side of Italy to Puteoli, some 200 rough kilometres south of Rome. Then something of a triumphal procession for Paul by land, meeting various Christian groups on the way. The wee passage ends as they reach Rome, so Luke presumably left them at that point. Paul's treatment in Rome was very relaxed. There is good reason to think that he met up with a high Roman official and was placed under only a form of house arrest, with a soldier keeping an eye on him. This all suggests that the documentation about Paul sent from Caesarea did not contain a serious case against him. And now we read chapter 28, verses 17, to the end of the book at verse 31. Three days later he called together the leaders of the Jews. When they had assembled, Paul said to them, My brothers, although I have done nothing against our people or against the customs of our ancestors, I was arrested in Jerusalem and handed over to the Romans. They examined me and wanted to release me, because I was not guilty of any crime deserving death. But when the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, not that I had any charge to bring against my own people. For this reason I have asked to see you and talk with you. It is because of the hope of Israel that I am bound with this chain. They replied, We have not received any letters from Judea concerning you, and none of the brothers who have come from there has reported or said anything bad about you. But we want to hear what your views are, for we know that people everywhere are talking against this sect. They arranged to meet Paul on a certain day, and came in even larger numbers to the place where he was staying. From morning till evening he explained and declared to them the kingdom of God, and tried to convince them about Jesus from the law of Moses and from the prophets. Some were convinced by what he said, but others would not believe. They disagreed among themselves and began to leave after Paul had made this final statement. The Holy Spirit spoke the truth to your forefathers when he said through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will be ever hearing but never understanding. You will be ever seeing but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears and have closed their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore I want you to know that God's salvation has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will listen. For two whole years Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. Boldly and without hindrance he preached the kingdom of God, and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's explanation to the Jewish leaders that he had done nothing and did not intend to do anything, contrary to their interests, suggests that the case against him had been dropped by the Jews of Judea. He did not intend to bring a counter-case of wrongful arrest. What follows is a repetition of events in many cities in the East when Paul started to preach. 
but without the rioting and general antagonism evident in so many of them. Presumably, the presence of the Roman authorities in this great city had a quietening effect on their sensibilities. The great unsolved mystery about this final chapter is what happened after the two years of house arrest. Did Luke write another scroll that has since been lost? We have no evidence to that effect. Was Paul acquitted after the two years and go on mission again? That is what an historian called Eusebius thought, writing 250 years later. Did he reach Spain as he had hoped? We have no solid evidence of that. Was he eventually martyred in Rome? There is a strong tradition that he was. Question 4. Triumph or tragedy? What do you think of what Luke says happened in Rome to summarise his long and vivid account of the Acts of the Apostles? There is much more triumph than tragedy here. Luke started off his scroll by emphasising the way that the good news of Jesus was to be taken to the ends of the earth. A necessary step in that direction was to take it to the centre of the earth. The saying is, and was, all roads lead to Rome, and from Rome. Even today, if you live anywhere in the southern half of Europe, you will probably have seen how true that was. Their roads were so well built, they still exist in many places. Paul had used them to best advantage for the message of Jesus. Paul must have been approaching the end of his natural lifespan anyway. He would be happy to die, especially if that was in the service of Jesus. To him, it was a triumph indeed. There was, of course, some tragedy mixed in as well, Paul's comment to the Roman Christians a little earlier had been, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart for those of my own race, the people of Israel. Once again here in the heart of empire, the Jewish population was split right down the middle as it had been nearly everywhere Paul had been. For one last question, think back over the way Luke has described the work of Paul in all these many places he visited. He has consistently described Paul as starting with the Jews and the Gentiles associated with the Jewish faith. Question 5. What does that imply for the work of the Gospel today? It seems to suggest that the right place to start with the preaching and teaching of the Gospel is with the nature of God, the law, and our struggles with it. So much modern preaching starts with the benefits of following Jesus as a way to a more satisfactory sense of personal fulfilment. That does not seem to be the place where Paul started. Should we copy him rather more than we currently do? Luke had given Theophilus an exciting and challenging story to read, as he has us. I hope it has excited and challenged you as you have read or listened to it. His very last sentence captures so well the whole story. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus with all boldness and without hindrance. We, you and I, cannot do anything about the 
without hindrance bit, the rest we can. Let's do so. May the Lord bless you in your endeavours to that end. Amen. Thanks for listening. Come back to Partakers, www.partakers.co.uk, where every day there is something added to help you in your life as a Christian disciple. Thank you.